You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode... Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. It is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Actually, one of the Argonauts was a trans man, so suck it. It's the day of the competition you've been training for, and your body is primed and ready. A man could practice for years without ever rising this high. You have hopes to catch the eye of the gods themselves, to have honors heaped upon you. That is exactly what happens, but not as you expected. When soldiers descend on the field during your competition, at first you are afraid, and then terrified, when you realize it is you they have come for. You have caught the eye of the emperor, they tell you, and the emperor always gets what she wants. She? You believe you have misheard, or perhaps they have misspoken. But you think it wise not to correct the men with the pointy weapons. The soldiers lift you onto a prancing white horse, shower you with garlands, whisk you from the competition field. You are led through the streets like a god in a religious procession, followed by children begging for coins, everywhere people leaning out of windows to gawk. When they finally stop at the palace, it is your turn to gawk. White marble everywhere, reaching to the sky. You are a simple young man, from a simple background. Your father was a cook. You have never walked such hallowed halls, nor have you ever expected to. The soldiers help you down, then crowd around you as if they think you'll try to bolt. You could have reassured them. You like both men and women. You like to give and you like to take. You have seen the emperor before, but only from afar, dark-eyed and swathed in imperial silk. Already, rumors swirl around him about his insatiable, forbidden appetites. You are not afraid. You are curious. But when you arrive at the emperor's room, it is not a boy that greets you. It is a girl, draped in silks and jewels, her long, dark hair falling down her back, her gaze hot enough to melt glass. You don't know what to say, so you bow, and what comes out of your mouth in the heat of her gaze is the wrong thing, my lord and emperor. But she merely smiles and turns her melting eyes to you and bids you rise. Do not call me lord, she says, for I am a lady. You gaze at her in wonder. She is a lady, and the most beautiful you have ever seen. 
for all your years praying in the temples, it is the first time that you feel you are in the presence of the divine. Here is a sacred mystery. The emperor is truly an empress. She has been so the whole time. Forgive me, empress, you murmur, averting your eyes, hoping you have not offended. And as you draw closer, you notice how small she is, how frail and vulnerable. There are fading bruises around her neck, on her collarbone. A surge of anger rises in your breast. For all her fierce armed guards, someone has been allowed to hurt her. You cannot say why you feel so protective, so very angry. You've only just met this woman. You have always been drawn to those who seem to need you most. As a child, you were always trying to set some sparrow's wing. Here is another beautiful bird before you, a marvel of the gods, fragile and flawless and in need of protection. You want her, yes, but you want, most of all, to protect her. All at once you are helpless to resist. She smiles up at you and takes your hand, and suddenly it's hard to breathe. The baths are this way, she says, and willingly you follow. You will only have one chance to earn your place in her life as her protector, and you hope you do not disappoint. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This episode is part of a series we're doing called Gender Rebels of the Ancient World, in which we explore the history and experience of gender nonconforming people in ancient Greece and Rome. Transgender people, both men and women, existed in ancient Greek and Roman society. It's common to hear people say that trans people simply didn't exist in the ancient world. Being trans is a modern thing. And it is true that there wasn't a word for transgender back then, and the way people thought and talked about their gender wasn't the same. The culture around gender was different in some ways. In other ways, it was very familiar. But just because there was no word for transgender, and just because people had a different vocabulary around their gender and may have talked about it differently, doesn't mean that there weren't people in the ancient world whose experience of their gender would be very familiar to trans people today. Such people may not have described themselves as identifying as a gender not assigned to them at birth, not because they didn't feel that way, but because they didn't have the words or cultural context to describe accurately how they felt. And even if they did, that doesn't mean their society would have accepted their gender identity or written about them in a way that honored it. It may also not have been safe for people in the ancient world to identify themselves as their preferred gender. In some cases, as it still is today for trans people in some situations. A lack of sources about trans people doesn't mean they didn't exist, as we talked about in our last episode on queer women. But the thing is, there's not a lack of sources on transgender people in ancient Greece and Rome. They were there, people wrote and talked about them, and they were a visible part of life and society. True, they may not have described their gender the way a trans person would today, or rather, ancient writers didn't describe their gender that way, not saying that they wouldn't have, but the people whose words come down to us may not have honored their gender preferences. But I do think that if someone was assigned one gender at birth and later chose to live as another gender, it's reasonable to call them transgender. So today, we're going to tell you all about the transgender men and women of ancient Greece and Rome. Frequently, when people talked about trans people in the ancient world, both men and women, they saw it in the context of something magical or even religious. Being a person who transformed from male to female, or someone who strongly felt that their gender was not the same as their sex assigned at birth, was something that implied some sort of godly intervention. So first, we're going to tell you about a very visible subset of people in ancient Rome who would have fallen into this category, the Gali, 
or priestesses of Sybil. These were trans women, and often people called them priests, but since we're discussing them as transgender women here, we think it's more appropriate to use the she-her pronouns and call them priestesses. In our episode on transgender Aphrodite, which we released a few months ago, we discussed the transgender form of Aphrodite worshipped in cult centers on Cyprus, as well as Aphrodite's ancestors, Ishtar and Inanna, and the transgender priestesses, the Gala, who led her worship. But transgender women weren't just involved in the worship of Aphrodite and her precursors, and they weren't just present in the very ancient past. Aphrodite's was kind of a small cult on Cyprus, and this was a mystery cult, and not everyone in ancient Greece and Rome was in on the mystery of transgender Aphrodite. But there were several very visible cults in the ancient Greek and Roman world that were led by transgender women that occurred much later than the Galli of Ishtar and Inanna, operating from the Republic into the imperial period in all corners of the Roman Empire. One of these cults was that of Adargatis, the Syrian mermaid goddess who inspired the first Servile War. We have a whole episode on her in our Patreon. We also talk about her in our first episode on the Servile War. Her priestesses are also sometimes called the Galli and described virtually identically to the priestesses of Sybil. So a little confusing there, but they are two different goddesses. But the cult of Sybil was the most prominent and visible religion led by transgender women in ancient Greece and Rome. It can get quite confusing. They're associated a lot in the literature. I assume that they had pretty similar traditions. I don't think they were from the same place. Adar goddess was Syrian and Sybil was Phrygian, which was the area of Turkey today. Sybil was an Anatolian and Phrygian fertility goddess, also called the Mountain Mother. In the Greek and Roman world, she was sometimes rolled in with earth goddesses like Rhea and Gaia, but she was very different from those goddesses. She was the only known goddess of ancient Phrygia in modern-day Turkey, and the oldest representation of her in ancient times was said to be carved into a crag of rock at Mount Sipolis, which absolutely looks like Mount Syphilis, but is not. It does. It looks like a mountain where you would just sit down and have syphilis. <laughs> it sure does, Jen. <laughs> Much like there's a mountain somewhere in Greece where you become a, a werewolf. <laughs> Ow! Ow! <laughs> anyway, it's thought that her earliest precursors were the very well-endowed fertility goddesses of Neolithic times. For example, the seated woman of Catalhoyuk, which dates from around 6000 BC. She is made in a tradition that includes the Venus of Willendorf and other fertility goddesses from the Neolithic, which are a lot older than the seated woman of Catalhoyuk. The seated woman is actually like a spring chicken compared to some of these. The Venus of Willendorf, for instance, is about 25,000 years old. I love these fertility goddesses. I want to do something on them sometime. I also think like when you say very well endowed, the thing about these goddesses, these fertility goddesses, is they were very large women. They were very large. They were looking at the beauty standard and the fertility standard here was just very, very plus size, very curvy, very big women. Very naked as well. Very naked. Everything was out. <laughs> yeah, everything was out and very proud. <laughs> yeah, and it was about like having all these curves and all this extra flesh was your health and also your ability to reproduce. And like it was very, it was a different level of beauty that we don't see coming down later on through like the classical period. So like I do like to call it out when I see it because I just want to remind people there are many beauty standards. Absolutely. I think like I have a running theory in my head that beauty standards are tied to signifiers of wealth. So a signifier of plenty in some times would be if you were larger, if you were not then. That and also a signifier of being able to 
be that mother who nurtures and suckles all the babes in the world. Like you would need to be able to produce a lot. So you're going to need the big full breasts and the hips and everything else. You're perfectly capable of doing it at any size. It's just this was the, the goddess of this time. And, and for me, we just don't see that anymore. And especially once you get into classical artwork, you lose a lot of that. It's more about like the perfect proportions and stuff. So I do like the fact that it existed at some point in time. Yeah. So it's said that Sybil's physical body on Earth was a black meteorite kept in a temple in Piscinus near modern day Turkey called the Megalesian. Sybil was adopted as a goddess by Greek colonists living in Asia Minor. And from there, she spread to Greece around the 500s BC. The Romans called her Magna Mater. Which I think means just big mama. Yeah, or like greatest mother, essentially, yeah. Because Magna, Magna means like the greatest, the best, the, the, you know, the ultimate mother, the big mother. <laughs> the big, the big mama. <laughs> so the Romans called her the big mama. And they started up a uniquely Roman version of her cult in 205 BC, around the Second Carthaginian War. The Sibylline prophecies had said that the Romans would defeat the Carthaginians only if they adopted Sibyl into their pantheon. So that's what the Romans did. They were like, this is an easy win. Done. They even gave her a new, uniquely Roman mythology that made her a Trojan goddess who came to Rome with Aeneas. Now she's all ours. We got you, Sibyl. You came over with Aeneas, our guy. And we're never letting you go. Ever. <laughs> so I could write a whole episode on Sybil, and I might someday, who knows. But what I'm really interested in right now are her priestesses, the Galli. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. When the Roman Senate officially brought Sybil into their pantheon in 204 BC, not 205 BC, I think I wrote down 205 BC before, 204 or 205 BC, anyway, when the Roman Senate officially brought Sybil into their pantheon, her priestesses came along, escorting the black meteorite that was said to be Sybil's body on earth into the Temple of Victory on the Palatine Hill as meteors fell from the sky. The date was celebrated for decades and centuries after, with a festival that included animal sacrifice, public games, and music performed by the Galli, Sybil's very visible, very musical priestesses. And here's what we know about the Galli. They were assigned male at birth, but when they joined the cult, they lived as women. They were known to wear women's clothing. Yellow was a sacred color, as well as earrings, bracelets, necklaces, and makeup. They were said to bleach their hair blonde and grow it long and adorn it with tiaras. They curled their hair with hot tongs and shaved their legs, or the Roman equivalent of that, which involves scraping off the hair with a pumice stone and sounds quite painful. It's fairly clear that they lived as women. Whether the society they lived in perceived their gender identity the way they did is a little more of an open question. The Greeks may have. They gave the Galli she-her pronouns in their epigrams. In ancient Rome, however, the picture is a little more unclear. The Galli, who loved shiny jewelry and beautiful clothes and who absolutely refused to conform to the Roman rigid gender binary, 
rapidly became notorious in ancient Rome. I mean, I love them so much. We would get along so well. They sound extremely fabulous. Like, not gonna lie. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I love it. And I'm so glad they existed. And I'm so glad you found this and we get to put this out there. But here's the thing. The way the Galli stood out pushed all kinds of Roman buttons about effeminate, luxury-loving Easterners and foreigners. And because of this, the Romans often did not write about them kindly. Because remember, Romans were terrified of anything that threatened the patriarchy. Oh, no! Yeah, we really dug into that in the Queer Women episode. They would have been just very, very unsettled by these women. A few ancient Roman writings about the Galli do seem to honor their gender as women, but it's more common to see them referred to in a more derogatory sense as, and I'm quoting here, half men. Ugh. I know, ugh. This refers to something that was apparently part of the Galli's religious practice. As part of their induction into the cult of Sibyl, they were said to undergo castration. So I'm going to talk about this part of the Galli's life in some detail, not because I believe that undergoing a medical procedure is required to be trans, it's not, and not to fetishize this, but because it was, according to the ancient sources, a big part of their religious practice, and it ties into the magical religious aspect of transformation that was involved in the way the ancients explained and contextualized transgender people. I'm not going to talk about how it was done, though, so if you don't want to hear those details, don't worry. I'm saving it for an episode I'm planning later in the season. We don't know a lot about the religious beliefs of the Galli. We don't know why they underwent castration, or even for sure if they did, although there is some archaeological evidence to support it. However, if we look back into the beliefs of the Gala, the worshippers of Inanna, there was a belief that the goddess had the power to transform men into women, and that she did this with her priestesses for the awe of the people. It's possible that a similar belief was at play here with Sybil. The Galli were known for their wild, frenzied, musical religious rites, in which they would play tambourines and whip themselves until blood flowed. It was during this festival that new initiates would supposedly castrate themselves. The ancient writers seemed to think it was a self-castration. There was a myth to explain this, which had to do with Sybil's consort, Attis. According to the story, he was unfaithful to Sybil and castrated himself in a fit of remorse. When we talk about the galley like this, like their wild, frenzied, musical, religious rites with the tambourines, like that sounds so maenad to me. And I just love that, like, kind of the other side of the Dionysian coin, right? This is a goddess who also is blurring the gender boundaries and who's got trans women in her entourage. To me, you can just see how scary Sybil would have been for these reasons to the Romans and how it was so important that they like keep everything in check. Absolutely, yeah. So the poet Catullus, who was Roman, dramatized Attis and his self-castration in a poem called Sybil and Attis, which demonstrates how Attis's gender was depicted as changing with self-castration. So this does mention how he does the castration, which I feel is mythologized. People didn't actually do it this way. But just FYI, if you don't want to hear the gory bits, it's coming up. So, quote, Attis was whisked over the deep sea in a swift ship. As soon as he set foot in the Phrygian woods, eagerly and quickly, he entered the shadowy forest-crowned haunts of the goddess. Then and there, driven by a frenzied delirium, Attis, out of his mind, hacked off the burden of his genitals with a sharp piece of flint. And so when she, no longer he, sensed that her manhood was gone, while still staining the soil of the earth with fresh drops of blood, she impetuously took up in her snowy white hands your light tambourine, Sybil, took up your mysteries, O oh mother, 
Shaking the hollow oxhide of the tambourine with delicate fingers, tremulously, she began to sing this exhortation to her companions. Again, just something I'm seeing here with Dionysus is like, when women become mad, they go off into the woods, and a lot of times, like, they rip and rend and tear their own family members apart in frenzy, right? And they kind of leave this world of being women into being, like, frenzied followers of this god. And I kind of think you're seeing a very similar thing here with Sybil. Attis is no longer a part of the patriarchal masculine world. He has now undergone something in these woods that have turned him from a cheating, kind of not a great guy into a transgender person who is worshipping her goddess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, there's also this aspect of blood and violence and ripping and tearing and stuff with this self-castration, which again, I don't think this is even medically possible that they would have done it this way. It just, it's one of those things, again, where you see the mythology of like ripping a baby apart and not realizing it's your baby. It's, it's this strange kind of madness that they seem to be giving to this cult and also Dionysus's cult to sort of try and make sense of why they would do something like this. And that's another thing about this myth is that we don't know that this is an actual myth from the Galli themselves because they didn't write it down. You know, there aren't stelae and books and scrolls that have their beliefs written down on them. This was a mystery cult, which means that it was a mystery. And so the Romans were often, and then they did this sometimes, they, they would sometimes make up myths to explain why mystery cults they didn't understand had certain practices or beliefs. And that, that's kind of where I was getting at with this. It's like, oh, why would a bunch of women want to run off into the woods and join Dionysus and not deal with all the bullshit in their highly controlled lives? Oh, we have to just make them crazy and frenzied. And I feel like it's the same thing that you're seeing here with Sybil. Like, why would these transgender women want to be in a place that accepts them with a goddess who is there for them and everything else that they could want? Oh, we must make them crazy and self-castrating. Why would they want to be women if they could be men? That's another question, too, that I'm sure that that the outsiders had. Exactly. And there's also this other thing that we see here about whiteness. Yeah, it's the line, she took up in her snowy white hands your light tambourine. The weird thing about that is that these ladies, like I'm describing them, they dyed their hair blonde. They kind of sound like California surfer girls, but they would not have been white. They were from Turkey, so they wouldn't have been white. So it is a bit of an odd description that she has snowy white hands here. What we're seeing here with the whiteness is it's really associated with feminine beauty in ancient Rome. Women used to be kept out of the sun. Remember, a lot of times they weren't allowed out of the house without their male guardians. Whiteness was a, was a symbol of beauty because, again, it was a symbol of status. The idea is that if you did not have to leave the house, you had servants, enslaved people to do your work for you, then you were higher status and you had money. It's a very odd detail to me that when we were first, when we first like got into the research, I really like pulled out because like whiteness here reminds me a lot of times when we see like Spartacus was a redhead. It's like he probably wasn't the area of the world you're talking about where he's coming from. I don't think he was a ginger. But what you're they're doing is also using this sort of descriptor to other these people. I would say like largely the people in the ancient Roman Empire would have been various shades of brown, except for the Gauls and the Celts and people like that. These ladies in particular, because they were associated with this region and the Romans, we're going to get to this in a minute, were really adamant that Roman citizens couldn't join the cult. So they would have been largely from Phrygia. And I don't know if other people outside of Phrygia ever joined the cult, possibly, but like they largely would not have been white. It might indicate that the Gauli were using like whitening, you know, whitening cosmetics. 
people used cosmetics made of chalk, crocodile dung, all kinds of other interesting ingredients to lighten their skin. And it's possible, you know, they wore makeup a lot. So maybe they also whiten their skin as a sign of feminine beauty. If you're a scholar who studies this, please drop us a DM. We'd love to have a chat with you. Oh, there's another interesting thing to point out here about the language. Ancient Romans did not necessarily view people who had been castrated as changing into women when they underwent castration. The picture on the Roman perception of gender identity for eunuchs is complex, and I get into it more in the episode that we're going to do specifically on this topic, which is going to drop later. The simple version is that they may have viewed eunuchs as a sort of third gender, neither men or women, or as a lower level of a cisgender man. There were levels of masculinity, according to this theory, because of course there were, because it's Roman. It's all got to be rigid. Right. There has to be like a hierarchy of masculinity. Every time we talk about this, it does not surprise me that you go from the Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire to like Catholicism. None of this surprises me. It's all very hierarchical and rigid. Yeah, and it's why trans people have such a hard time even today being accepted. Like all of this goes way back. Yeah. But it's fairly rare that the Romans would have agreed on their own that a person designed male at birth who underwent castration was now in fact a woman. Although they might call them that as an insult, they would still see them as a man, is what I'm getting here. But here is Catullus, a Roman poet, describing Attis as she once she underwent castration. Quote, And so when she, no longer he, sensed that her manhood was gone, while still staining the soil of the earth with fresh drops of blood, she impetuously took up in her snowy white hands your light tambourine. This may be Catullus honoring the Gauli's real gender here as women and highlighting their religious beliefs, which said that their induction into the religion involved a transformation from men into women. I kind of really hope that's the case. I just don't see Catullus being that sensitive, but I just, I, I would like it if he was. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I mean, this is my hopeful interpretation of that. I may be giving him way too much credit here. <laughs> I kind of do the same thing when I look at certain Greek goddesses and some of the things that they do and the damage they inflict on women, you know, and I try and be like, well, maybe there's like a, another way that this could be. And it's like, mm, no, probably not. You're just looking at it through modern eyes, trying to make it better than it was. I romanticize things all the time that I really shouldn't, but I can't help myself. It's how I'm wired. I also think that when we tell these stories in our modern age. We are looking at them from a modern lens. And it's important that we point out that probably it wouldn't have been this way, but you could read it this way. And if maybe it was this way sometimes for some people, if not could tell us, maybe it was for other people who read his works and they would see it this way. Yeah. So anyway, the priestesses of Sybil transformed themselves the way Addis did from men into women. March 24th, called the Deus Sanguinis or Day of Blood, was the date they marked the death of Addis. In a frenzy of ecstatic religious music and dance, new initiates would enter into a divine trance and, according to the ancient sources, I don't really believe this, castrate themselves as Addis did. In this way, they were seen as transforming through this religious ritual, probably by their goddess, into women. After their castration, the Galae would abandon their prior masculine identities and live as women. And they occupied a strange liminal space in ancient Roman society. On the one hand, they were marginalized. They were most likely almost all foreigners, which further othered them in xenophobic ancient Rome, because Roman citizens, as we said before, were allegedly banned from joining her cult, although not all historians agree that this would have been the case at all times. Sybil's devotees would wander the countryside in groups, telling fortunes for charity. Respectable Romans looked at them with suspicion, 
as people both outside the bounds of respectability, foreigners and gender rebels, but ones with a certain amount of religious power whom you did not want to cross. You can totally see what's happening here. The Romans, the respectable Romans, are fucking terrified. They are. I mean, first off, they're extremely superstitious. And they have constructed elaborate gender identities that they cling to furiously because they've built their society around it. They've built their power around it. And if they lose that, they lose their grip on power. And they don't know how to be in a world where they don't have this power. Because here's the thing. The Gali had religious power. The Gali themselves might have been marginalized in ancient Roman culture, but their goddess, Sybil, wasn't. She had her own state cult. Like other state cults, they had a head priest in Rome who oversaw all Sybil's festivals and religious rituals. This head of, the, this head of religion was called the Archigallus. Unlike the rank-and-file Gali, the Archigallus always had to be a Roman citizen. So in order to run this cult, you had to be a Roman citizen, but you couldn't have joined the cult and been a priestess if you were a Roman citizen. You could only join in this one role. That's right. And um, I think I've seen some scholars discuss the fact that castration was banned during a lot of periods in the Imperial Roman Empire. And I mean, this ban changed and went in and out of favor depending on who the emperor was. But there were significant times when castration was not allowed for Roman citizens specifically. You could still get it done if you were in Rome, but not a Roman citizen. So that might have been part of it, is that you were not allowed to go through the induction ritual as a Roman citizen at certain times. How did you get to be appointed as Archigallus if you've never joined the cult officially? Don't look at me. They do not explain this. And also, like, if you were a priestess, why would you respect an Archigallus who had never been a priestess and hadn't undergone the same experiences that you did and was a Roman citizen and kind of an outsider because none of the people who were priestesses were allowed to be Roman citizens? Well, the other question is, did all of the Galli undergo castration? It might have been optional, but if it is the case that the Archigallus could indeed not join the cult because of this ban on joining the cult as a citizen and on getting castrated, and if that was required, then yeah, I imagine there would have been quite a lot of tension. It might have been, yeah. So anyway, the cult of Sybil was not only a very important state religion, it was also very widespread throughout the Roman Empire, including as far north as Hadrian's Wall. In fact, in 2002, archaeologists discovered the grave of a Gali, a trans woman, dating from around, I believe, the 300s AD in Catterick, North Yorkshire, which is not too far from Hadrian's Wall. She wore women's clothes and was adorned in jewelry made of jet, a jet necklace and bracelet, an armlet made of shale, and a bronze anklet. Two stones had been placed in her mouth. Jet jewelry was believed to have magical protective properties and suggests a strong connection to Near Eastern mystery cults in the ancient world. The Gali were clear examples of transgender individuals in ancient Rome, people who were assigned male at birth, but who transitioned to a female identity when they entered the cult of their goddess. Their transition was ritualized and possibly marked with something that we might see as gender-affirming surgery today. You know, the ancient world equivalent of that. Maybe. Since this was a religious ritual, the gender transformation was probably also seen as facilitated by divine means. So trans women in ancient Rome were not only around, but very visible. They were leaders of an important state cult, and they were active throughout the empire. But what about trans men? They existed too, and their transition was also sometimes seen as a magical or religious experience. (laughs) 
There's a Greek myth that depicts a trans guy. The most complete version of this myth is in Ovid's Metamorphosis. But Ovid didn't invent this story. The earliest surviving source is the work of Akusalaus, an ancient Greek mythographer from the 6th century BC. It's the story of Caenius. There are several different versions of this myth, but all say that Caenius started off as a woman. Caenius. Caenius and Caenius. It's hard to tell exactly with the pronunciations because they're spelled extremely similarly, but we're going to try and work our way through this here. My dyslexia at the best of time makes this difficult, so just bear with us. Spare with us, we'll get through it. In some versions of the story, Caenus, the woman, was kidnapped and raped by Poseidon. And he was so pleased with her afterwards or something that he offered to grant her a wish after this. It's like a consolation prize. In other versions, the sex was consensual. Caenus agreed to have sex with Poseidon in exchange for a favor. Either way, the favor she asked for was to be transformed into a man. And not just any man. A hero with skin that could not be penetrated by any blade or weapon. Poseidon granted this wish, so this is a mythological example of a god-granted gender transformation. Of course, it has rape in it because it's the ancient world and everything was terrible. And also it's about fucking Poseidon. Of course it has rape in it. So Caenius went on to have an epic life. In some stories, he joined the hunt for the Caledonian boar and signed up with Jason and the Argonauts in the quest for the Golden Fleece. So next time someone tells you that trans people didn't exist in the ancient world, just tell them that actually one of the Argonauts was a trans man, so suck it. Yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so in Ovid's version, Caenius encountered some centaurs, the hooligans of ancient Greece, we all know that, and they mocked him and deadnamed him and refused to use his proper pronouns. So Caenius killed them. I mean, this seems like the appropriate response. Like the centaurs are just being a bunch of assholes and he's like, why not? dicks dicks (laughs) he was later also killed by centaurs who piled logs on top of him because he couldn't be pierced with a weapon so they had to pile logs on him exactly they had to crush him yeah or maybe he transformed into a bird and flew away anyway so this story tells us about someone transformed by a god from woman to man a mythologized version of a trans person's life but it's not the only story like this some myths and stories have more to tell us about the actual lived experience of trans men. So here's where we return to the story of Iphis and Ianthe, which is also in Ovid's Metamorphosis. We told the story in detail in our Queer Women episode, exploring its implications as a depiction of two cisgender women in love. However, that isn't the only way you can interpret this story. Another is that Iphis is a transgender man. So, We're going to look at this story again from this view. We're going to go back all the way to the beginning. A woman named Telethusa is pregnant and her husband, Ligdus, is adamant that he doesn't want a girl. He commands Telethusa to expose the baby if it turns out to be a girl. Telethusa is not on board with this at all, but she doesn't feel like she has any option but to obey her husband. Until the goddess Isis comes to her and tells her, you know what, go ahead and defy that asshole. She, Isis, would back her up. Isis has got your back, girl. Listen, if Isis tells you she's going to back you when you disobey your husband, you're going to disobey your husband, because why the hell would you not? Why wouldn't you? (laughs) So that's exactly what Telethusa does. She gives birth while Ligdus is out of the house, thank God, and the baby does turn out to be a girl, or at least have female-assigned genitalia. Immediately, Telethusa swaddles the baby, wraps it up tight, and tells everybody that the child is in fact a boy. Yeah, this is a huge, huge cover-up that she's going to embark on, and I love it. 
So when Lictus returns home, he is overjoyed. He declares that his son should be named Iphis, which is actually a gender-neutral name. Iphis is raised as a boy, and when he grows up, he's engaged to his childhood sweetheart, the most beautiful girl in Crete, Ianthe. Ianthe thinks that Iphis is a cisgender man, and she's excited for her wedding night. She's like, yes, I am here for this. Unlike other brides, like, I like this guy. I am ready to enjoy my marital life. Bring on that D, baby. Exactly. But Iphis is kind of freaking out because he doesn't have a penis, which is what Ianthe is going to be expecting. Even though he identifies as male and he's a boy and everyone's always treated him as a boy and he's a boy. Back off. Yeah. So he prays to the gods and at the last second, right before the marriage, the gods give him a dick. It's literally a dickus ex machina. This story is found in Ovid's Metamorphosis. In it, much is made about how, quote, unnatural it is for two cisgender women to marry or fall in love. However, this story can also be interpreted as the story of a transgender man in the ancient world. And as with transgender women, his gender transformation is seen as the act of a god. If his prays for a dick, and he gets one, just in time for his wedding night. So, what does this story tell us about transgender men in the ancient world? Well, first off, Iphis and Ianthe's story isn't the only one of its kind. There are others out there, and some scholars see them as stories of transitioning. The theory goes that the ancient Greeks and Romans sometimes did encounter individuals who had once lived as women but now lived as men, and these stories served as a kind of explanation for how that could come to be. There's a pattern to these transitioning stories. One is that the transition is always from female to male, never the other way around. Another pattern is that the transition is seen as being facilitated by a god or a magical power of some kind. Usually it's a god. It's kind of a religious miracle. So another part of the pattern is that the transformation frequently seems to occur right before or after a wedding. It's possible this tells us something about trans men's experiences too. People in the ancient world were often married off young, sometimes as early as puberty. It's possible that while a trans boy might know he's a boy starting very early in childhood, as many trans kids do today, the upcoming wedding might have been a time of extreme stress for trans kids, both a time when their bodies were changing in a way they didn't identify with, and also a time when they were expected to step into an adult role as defined by the sex assigned to them at birth. Those expectations are pretty strong today. They were crushing in the ancient world. It's also possible that some transgender people decided at or after marriage that they could no longer live as the sex assigned at birth, and they adopted a different identity. Sometimes this was even accepted by their partners. Sometimes it wasn't. And there are stories about this, too. So these are some examples of transgender men in the mythology. But what about the history? Are there any real signs of trans men existing? There are. And one of the places we can find them is in Fleegon of Traily's Book of Marvels. Hilarious that we're calling that history, but we are. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to ancient history. This is what they left us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we used the Book of Marvels as a main source for one of our Halloween episodes last year with Liv Albert. It's an episode called Three Ghost Stories from Ancient Greece. The Book of Marvels was assembled by a Greek writer, Phlegon, who was part of the household of the Emperor Hadrian in the 100s AD. The Book of Marvels documents what Phlegon believed to be human oddities, and it was part of a genre called paradoxography that was popular in ancient Greece and Rome, comparable to, like, the National Enquirer today or Ripley's Believe It or Not. 
The Book of Marvels and its only modern translation in English, which is from the 90s, is super problematic for a variety of reasons. One being its insensitive treatment of intersex people, and another being how it fetishizes people with health conditions or disabilities. And we talk about this book and its history more extensively in our Ghost Stories episode, so if you want to hear more specifically about its history and what makes it unique, you can check it out. But it's still a really interesting source and a valuable source for a variety of reasons, and one of those is that it gives us an intriguing glimpse about the existence of transgender men. There's a section called Monstrous Births, which, ugh, that talks about unusual births that happened. Some are obviously fantastical, like a baby girl born with the head of Anubis, the Egyptian god of the dead. Others are more troubling, like girls as young as six giving birth. There are two entries about men giving birth. Liv Albert mentioned one in our Ghost Stories episode, but we're going to mention it again. The entry is tantalizingly short and just says that in Alexandria, a male homosexual gave birth and, quote, because of the marvel, the baby was embalmed and is still preserved, end quote. So this could easily be seen as evidence of a trans man. In Alexandria, a gay trans man lived with his male partner, got pregnant, and gave birth. We don't know if the baby was stillborn or why it was embalmed. Either way, This sounds like a pretty disturbing story for everyone involved, but the point is that a trans man in Alexandria seems to have given birth, and the event, while extremely prosaic, was still seen as a quote-unquote marvel, and it made it into Fliegon's book. There's another one in this section, too. In Germany, quote, the male slave of a soldier gave birth. That's all we have, that very brief sentence. Roman soldiers did sometimes travel with slaves, either from Rome or from conquered peoples, This gives us no context at all, so it's hard to make any assumptions other than that it appears that this enslaved person was a transgender man. So those are two entries we can interpret as being about transgender men that are quite prosaic and low-key. A person who is living as a man and accepted as a man was seen to give birth. This may reflect a real experience of the lives of trans men in the ancient world. There are, however, other entries in the Book of Marvels that follow a more magical, transformational pattern like we see in the myths. In them, girls suddenly spontaneously sprout male genitals, often right before marrying. One of them went on to spend his life as a gardener. These types of transitioning stories, like that of Iphis and Ianthe, are not limited to the Book of Marvels. Pliny the Elder tells us, quote, Women transforming into men is not an idle story. We find it in the annals that in Publius Licinius Crassus and Gaius Cassius Longinus in 171 BC. The reason they have these names is that those were the names of two consuls. Like, they mark their years by who the consuls were. Yes. In the year of these two consuls, this is what happened. According to uh, Pliny, quote, A girl, a Cassinium, was changed into a boy as her parents watched and at the order of the augurs was transported away to a desert island. Licinius Mucianus has recorded that he personally saw at Argos a man named Ariscon, who had been given the name of Ariscusa, and had actually married a husband, and then had grown a beard and developed masculine attributes, and had married a wife, and that he had also seen a boy with the same record at Smyrna. I myself saw in Africa a person who had turned into a male on the day of marriage, in Thystretum. So... Some stories of transgender men transitioning in the ancient world do seem to be magical or possibly religious in nature. There are a number of dickus ex machinas here. 
Despite their magical or religious nature, they may reflect some aspects of the real experience of transgender men and boys in the ancient world. But sometimes, stories of transgender men were less miraculous and magical and more kind of low-key and prosaic. A person who had previously lived as a woman was now a man. And these stories may also reflect the truth of trans men's lives in the ancient world. Phlegon tells us of a trans man that he met himself once. Quote, In Syrian Lydokea, there was a woman named Aitite who underwent a change in form and name even while she was living with her husband. Having become a man, Aitite was named Aititos. So this one sounds fairly realistic to me. A trans man assigned female at birth started to live as a man while married to his husband. And I guess the husband accepted it. Maybe he changed his form through breast binding. The sources don't say, but there are ways that can be done. This is only a small snapshot, of course, but it gives us the impression that trans men were around too. They existed. They made decisions to change their gender and stop living as women and take up a new life living as men. And sometimes this was even accepted by their partners and by society at large who saw their transformation as an act of a god or a form of a miracle. It's quite possible that as trans women were living very visibly as priestesses of Sybil in ancient Rome, trans men all over the empire were quietly living as men under the radar, rarely noticed, unless one of them happened to get pregnant. Or unless you met one and he told you about how he used to live as a woman, but now he was a man. Yeah. Here is another story about a transgender man in ancient Rome, one who may fall into this category. It comes to us from Lucian's Dialogues of the Courtesans, a collection of short conversations written by the satirist Lucian in the 2nd century AD. One dialogue involves a courtesan named Liana talking with her friend about a most interesting sexual encounter she had. According to the story, Liana, she's a Hatira, tells her friend that she was hired to play the Cythera at a wealthy party thrown by people she thought were two women. Demon Sasa. Demon Sasa. That's, that's the best name I've ever heard. Best name ever. I want to now just be referred to as Demon Sasa. I want to be referred to as Demon Sasa. Too late. I called it first on the podcast. It's mine. We're both Demon Sasa. Nope. <laughs> we might have to share the same first name. We are not sharing Demon Sasa. We're both the same name now. I don't see why this is such a stretch. Because <laughs> I want one thing that's mine in the war this world. I will be Demon Sasa. Anyway, so their name, these two women's names were Demon Sasa and Megilla. And Megilla just reminds me of like Mega Godzilla. Demon Sasa and Mega Godzilla. <laughs> After the party, the two women invited Leanna upstairs for some X-rated fun. So in the next section, we're going to include some quotes from the dialogues from Lucian, Dialogues of the Courtesans, translated by M.D. McLeod. And we're using the public domain uh, version here. So the two women invited Liana to lie between them. And at first, this is exciting for a different reason. You initially see it as a threesome between three women. Queer women having sex in the ancient world. It happened. And here's Lucian telling us about it. Yes! Woohoo! Woohoo! But as the women started passionately making out, one of them, Megilla, removed her wig to reveal that her head was shaved bare. She looked like a young male athlete. She asked Liana, quote, Did you ever see such a fine young man? I see none, Megilla, said Liana. Don't insult me by calling me that. I'm Megillus, and there is my wife, said Megillus, pointing at Demon Sassa. So Liana's reaction was confused. 
She tried to relate McGillis's gender to the things she had heard of before in Greek and Roman legend. And here's what she said. What, O McGillis? You were a man all the time, without knowing it, like Achilles hidden among the maidens in his purple vestments? No, for I do not need to hide. If you choose, you shall see that my ways are much better. Then you must be a hermaphrodite, partaking of a dual nature. No, I am entirely a man. I have heard that a famous soothsayer of Thebes, Tiresias, I think, who was changed from a woman to a man. Has anything of that sort happened to you? And this is so interesting. Leanna is trying to relate Megillus's gender to other examples of gender nonconforming people as presented in the mythology that she knows. Was Megillus in disguise like Achilles? Was he intersex like Hermaphroditos? Was he transformed by a god like Tiresias? Nope, nope, and nope, said Megillus. And this is a quote. I am entirely a man. I was born as other women, Leanna, but I have all the passions and desires of a man. Do you mean that the desire is enough for you? Let me show you, Leanna. If you don't credit it, and you will see that I am not inferior to a man, that I possess something equal to his. But try and be convinced. And Leanna was down to clown. I yielded, Leanna tells her friend, for she, obviously, she's using the wrong pronouns here, but I'm just going to read what is on the page, for she had given me a beautiful necklace and a linen gown of the finest fabric. She embraced me, just as if she had been a man, and kissed me, and the fulfillment of her desire made her pant. I saw that she vastly enjoyed herself. This story is fictional and written by a satirist. It's probably not the literal truth. But even so, it depicts something that was no doubt a reality in the ancient world. Some men had been born as women or assigned female gender at birth. Megillus isn't in disguise like Achilles. He didn't get genitals handed to him on a silver platter by the gods. He's not magically transformed from one sex and gender to another. And he isn't intersex. He is exactly what he says he is, assigned female at birth, but entirely a man. And Leanna's reaction was obviously not the greatest in terms of being affirming. I'm not going to lie, you know. But I just love how McGillis is so confident. He's secure in himself. He's just like, nope, this is who I am. Take it or leave it, but you're going to have more fun if you take it, babe. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I can give you just the best time ever, but if you don't want to accept it, you're not going to enjoy yourself. It's just so fun to read him. At the end of this conversation, he's beguiled Leanna into having a hot threesome with him and his wife. And of course, she's down. He's such a king. I mean, obviously, in real life, this would be a pretty fraught conversation for a trans person to have. So I don't want to minimize that. Yeah, we don't want to minimize that in any way, shape or form. I think the interesting thing that we're seeing here is that Number one, this is a fictional story, but it is affirming that trans men did exist and there was a confidence that was there too. He's got some swagger. He's also got a lot of trust here because like at any point in time, this satira could have like blown the whistle and that might have been a whole big problem for him. Possibly. I mean, I don't know if it was a crime to like live as a different gender, but it would have caused a ruckus at least. Maybe a scandal if they were highly placed and like wealthy, which it sounds like they were. So another interesting thing here is McGillis's disguise, and this story may also illustrate another way trans men in the ancient world stayed under the radar. So McGillis disguised himself as a woman when out in public, wearing women's clothes and a wig. Like, it's almost like he's, I don't know, in drag or in disguise. But while alone with his wife and whoever they happen to have invited upstairs, he can relax and be himself. 
It's possible that other trans men lived this way, too, in the ancient world. And I bet Hetire were the ones who saw and encountered gender nonconforming people the most. It's possible, you know. I mean, Hetire were uniquely placed because of their job as sex workers to see the private lives and the private sides of people that were not on display outside. Yeah. So those are some stories of trans men and women in ancient Greece and Rome. But no discussion of this would be complete without discussing the trans girl who became an emperor of Rome, because that absolutely happened, and her name was Elagabalus. And we did an episode on Elagabalus way back at the beginning of our podcast. It's in our first season in our Child Emperor series. Elagabalus was one of the child emperors who became a tyrant, and at that time, we used the he-him pronouns for Elagabalus. Most people do. And of course, it's impossible to know if Elagabalus would have identified as a girl the way trans girls do today. There's also the fact that Elagabalus was heavily maligned after her death, made a Demnatia Memoriae, and the details of her life mostly come from the Historia Augusta, an extremely dubious and wild source text that has occasional weird flashes of insightfulness and brilliance. And these details that we get about her may not have been true. But I think once we tell you her story, if we take it as truth, you might agree that she, her pronouns are the most appropriate. And I think that she would approve. So for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to go out on a limb and honor Elagabalus' identity as a girl by giving her female pronouns. So Elagabalus was emperor of Rome from 218 to 222 AD. She was originally Syrian from a wealthy and aristocratic family in Emesa. As a child, she served as a priestess of the sun god Elagabal. Her official name was Antoninus, and she had been assigned male at birth. Elagabalus was raised to the purple at the age of 14 by a rebelling faction of the Roman army. The rebellion was sparked by her grandmother, Julia Maissa, who wanted to be the power behind the throne. But as soon as Elagabalus became emperor, it was clear that she was not going to stay under her grandmother's thumb. She proceeded to ruffle feathers, starting by reshuffling the Roman pantheon to make Elagabal the head of the religion, with primacy over all religious rites. So basically, kicking Jupiter to the number two spot. Yeah, you can imagine how well that went. And Saturn and Janus. Remember we talked about Janus? It went down like a lead balloon among the Roman senators, let me tell you what. Elagabalus married four women, one of whom was a Vestal Virgin, and this would have been a huge scandal. She was also said to have transformed the Imperial Palace into a brothel and to have entertained sex work clients there, always doing sex work as a woman. Where have we seen this before? Pretty much all the other emperors who were Demnatio Memoriae. <laughs> all the Julian Claudians, particularly Messalina. Why even call it a palace at this point? It is the Imperial Brothel. Mm-hmm. Elagabalus was said to promote people to important government positions based purely on the size of their dongs. I mean, that's one way to do it. It's as good a criteria as any. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it really depends. Was she going for the big dongs or the thinking man's penis? I think you know the answer to that, Jen. <laughs> she liked the biggest dickus. So she was assassinated by her own Praetorian guard at the age of 18. What's true and what's just lord rumor presented as truth, only the gods know. Elagabalus led a short but very eventful life. 
She was also known to vary her gender presentation. She was said to dress sometimes as a man, especially when playing an authoritative role, such as trying someone in court. But other times, she dressed as a woman, usually when she was at her leisure. Another thing Elagabalus did was ask her physicians to surgically create a vagina in her body and offered large sums of money to anyone who could. And we get that detail from Cassius Dio, who's more trustworthy as a source than the Historia Augusta, and who was part of the Roman imperial court during Elagabalus's reign, so he actually knew her. She also, interestingly, is described as worshipping Sybil. The Historia Augusta calls Sybil the Great Mother. And she would, according to the Historia Augusta, quote, toss his head, toss her head, to and fro among the castrated devotees of the goddess. Elagabalus was bisexual, sleeping with both men and women. She married four women, as we said before, but she also married a man, a charioteer named Hierocles. She referred to herself as Hierocles' wife, mistress, and queen. Elagabalus would sometimes get really intense crushes on men. And we've all been there. We've all had a really intense crush. We've all been there. <laughs> One example was Hierocles, who fell off his chariot in front of Elagabalus' box at the games. When he did, his helmet fell off, and all his beautiful blonde hair fell out of his helmet, and Elagabalus fell head over heels in love. I mean, it's kind of a great scene. Like, he just gets up from the ground and gives his hair a shake, and it all streams down his back, because I guess it was really long, or maybe it was just to his shoulders. I really don't know, but it was very well conditioned. Oh, yeah. She's like, I would like a piece of that. And she got one. Because she always gets what she wants. <laughs> so she had a thing for athletes. Another of her intense crushes was Zodicus, a guy who was also an athlete. His dad was a cook, though, so everyone called him Cook because, you know, that's how nicknames worked in ancient Rome. So Zodicus had a perfect athlete's body and was rumored to also have a biggest dickus. Exactly. Elagabalus's type. Yeah, she had a type. That's what I'm picking up. Elagabalus fell in lust with Zodicus from afar while he was competing at the athletic games and whisked him away from the competition to the palace in a very dramatic fashion. On his way to the palace, Elagabalus had Zodicus showered with honors and garlands. The procession stopped to hold a festival in his honor. And finally, Zodicus was brought to Elagabalus's palace, where she met him at the door to her private chambers. And this is a quote from Cassius Dio, who again, knew these people. When Zodicus greeted Elagabalus as, quote, my lord and emperor, she bent her neck so as to assume a ravishing feminine pose, and turning her eyes upon him with a melting gaze, answered without hesitation, Call me not lord, for I am a lady. So here was Elagabalus specifically asking her crush to refer to her as a woman. Zodicus was absolutely down to clown, and the two retired to the baths, where Elagabalus discovered that the rumors about his biggest dickus were true. But at this point, Elagabalus was either married to or having an affair with Hierocles, who was the jealous type. Violently jealous. According to Cassius Dio, Hierocles used to beat Elagabalus and blacken her eyes when he found her sleeping with other people. I remember reading over Cassius Dio a second time where he talks about Elagabalus to put together this episode and finding that and just being really, really surprised and just feeling so much compassion for Elagabalus because... She's so vulnerable here. You know, she's a child emperor. And like when I originally wrote the old episode about Elagabalus, which we re-released recently, so you probably have heard it. You may have heard it at this point. 
I focused on, you know, the sensationalized aspects of Elagabalus and the tyranny aspects and all the bad things she was supposed to have done. And that stuff is also there in the ancient sources. But the other factor here is that she's age 14 to 18. So she's so young. And it's really clear that on a certain level, nobody is looking out for her. She's really on her own. And I just felt like I hadn't really understood that before about her life. Yeah, and she is breaking from the traditional patriarchal gender hierarchy of ancient Rome at the highest level. And, you know, while she's the empress and she can do anything to anybody, she's also a teenager who falls into these intense crushes and obviously at the hands of Pyrocles, she's a victim. And it's really sad and it really does mirror a lot of things that are still happening today. It reflects part of trans people's experience both in the ancient world and today, tragically. Yeah. So Hierocles slipped a drug into Zodicus's wine so he couldn't get an erection. And the next night with Elagabalus, Zodicus failed to deliver a repeat performance. And so he was driven in shame out of the palace, out of Rome, out of Italy, and out of Elagabalus's life. That was it. You have one chance and one chance only to impress her. And if you do not, then you need to go. <laughs> Goodbye. When you are visiting the empress, you must bring your A-game or you can get lost. So Elagabalus did not come to a good end. And to be fair, she wasn't a good ruler. She had a reputation for cruelty on the same level as Caligula and Nero. Although again, it's important to remember, she was demonized in the sources. So it's not clear exactly how much of this is true. But during her short life, for a brief period, a transgender woman ruled Rome. And that's pretty fucking amazing. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for another installment in this series, Gender Rebels of the Ancient World. In the meantime, catch up with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Insta and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl. We have some patrons to thank today, don't we, Jenny? Apologies to anybody whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Sarah Sward. Sarah Aho, Maisie. Just Maisie. Heather Gurr. And Amanda Bendel. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week.